Thank you, brother. Good to see you. Such an honor to be here with you this morning and to open God's Word uh, together to learn from Him. When Scott asked me to preach this week, I picked the passage before us. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 if you want to start turning there. I picked it today because it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, A brother at my church and I have started working together to memorize Romans chapter 1, and I've been gripped by the way that Paul introduces himself and greets the Christians at the church in Rome. I feel like often I can become so familiar, and I would guess a lot of us can become so familiar with Paul's greetings at the start of his letters that it's almost like we brush brush by it. Uh, It becomes so familiar to us uh, that it's almost like, uh, yeah, this is great. I I know grace and peace to you and all that. Let's, Let's get on to the good stuff. However, as I've been memorizing this section, I've really been struck by how much rich content Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, packs into this brief introduction to the book of Romans. I've been personally convicted and challenged considering Paul's instructions to the Christians in uh, Corinth when he says to be imitators of him as he is of Christ. I've been asking myself, and I want you guys to ask yourself today, is the way that we speak an imitation of the way that Paul speaks here in these first seven verses to the Romans in his letter to them. Do we speak like Paul speaks? When we talk, does it sound like the way that he talks? We might not always be saying the wrong things, but are we saying the right things in the right way? Is my speech dripping with the glory of the gospel of God? Is my identity the way that I talk about myself, firmly rooted in God's call on my life and the work that Christ has done on my behalf? Do I speak with clarity about the mission of my life? Do I use my speech, do I use my words to encourage my fellow believers? It's so important for us to be ever mindful of what we say and how we say it. We know all throughout Scripture, there are so many verses, I don't have time to go uh, to them, but you think of Proverbs and James and passages in Ephesians and Matthew speaking about the power of our words and the importance of our words to either do good or to do evil. Today we're going to look at how Paul talks about himself, how he talks about the gospel of God, how he talks about his mission in life, and how he talks about other believers. That'll be the simple outline that we will follow. We're going to have four points. We will look at how Paul speaks and how we should speak honestly and humbly about ourselves, speak boldly and clearly about the gospel of God, speak intentionally about our mission, and speak encouragingly to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's now turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. At our church, we all stand for the reading of God's Word, says, uh, give it a place of prominence and honor. So if you'll stand with me, if you will, as I read from Romans chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may go ahead and be seated. So we're going to start by speaking honestly and humbly about ourselves. Paul is writing to this church in Rome where he has never been before. A lot of Paul's letters, he's writing back to a church where he's already been. But in this letter, he's writing to a church where he has never been. And I find it fascinating the way that he introduces himself to the church. Look at it with me in verse 1. The very first thing he says about himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Is that what we would choose to be the first thing that we say about ourselves? So often in our own human pride or insecurity or combination of the two, we strive to make ourselves look better than we are, to puff ourselves up. Uh, picture, if you will, uh, writing out a resume to apply for a job. Uh, I saw a survey recently uh, taken last year by one of the largest hiring firms in the U.S. where they surveyed all of their users. And the question was, in, in your resume and in your interview and in the hiring process, did you either stretch the truth or lie? And 78% of the people that were interviewed said they did lie or stretch the truth to make themselves look better. That, in our sinful nature, is how we are bent. We want to make ourselves look good, to put the best thing about ourselves forward first. And Paul had the credentials to do this. He had a lot of things that he could have talked about. And in other places in Scripture, for other reasons, when he has a different goal, he does that. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, where his aim is to convince the church in Galatia of his apostolic authority, he says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty impressive thing to start with. I have direct revelation from Jesus Christ and I'm going to share it with you. You might think that's how Paul would try to impress this church in Rome. After all, Rome is kind of the center of the world politically, culturally at that time. So this is kind of like the big deal for Paul. Why wouldn't he start with this to try to impress them with, I got direct revelation from Jesus, but that's not how he starts. Turn with me, if you will, flip over a couple books to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple more of Paul's credentials and how he views his credentials. Uh, Philippians 3, 
I'm going to start reading in verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. This is Paul speaking about himself. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul had these credentials. He had this in his background that he could have put forward here. But that's not what Paul wanted to boast about. He didn't want to boast about himself. We see some of Paul's attitudes where in the letter uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And further on in Galatians in chapter 6, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think what Paul is doing here is he really is trying to put his best foot forward. Because of the transformation of his mind, I think he truly saw the best thing about himself being that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. Not all of his earthly accolades, but the fact that he was a servant of Christ. Let's pick up again in Philippians 3 verse 7. Looking back, talking about his credentials, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So though Paul had the earthly credentials that he listed, he saw far surpassing worth in being a servant of Christ and being identified in Christ. So that's why that's the first thing he wants to put forward. That was what was most important to Paul and what I argue should be the most important for us if we are in Christ. Uh, my family and I right now, we're living with my grandfather. And earlier this week, uh, we were having dinner with him. And after dinner, we were just kind of talking. And he was talking uh, about his life and some of his story and sharing with me. Um, and it's a different story than Paul in different areas. But sharing about how in his life, he had really kind of arrived on an earthly basis. He was working for Ball Aerospace, a big aerospace company up in Boulder, uh, literally working as a rocket scientist, designing parts and things for satellites. And he had gotten to the point where there was a government contract to try to convince NASA and to convince Congress to uh, pursue more scientific exploration in space, to actually send people to space, not kind of just to get there and compete with the Russians, but to get there 
there uh, to study and learn and grow. And Ball Aerospace won this contract to go to NASA and to go to Congress to try to convince them of this. And my grandfather is the one who they chose to send out. So he was literally traveling around the country as a rocket scientist, making pres presentations to the rocket scientists at NASA, and then finally going to Congress and presenting before Congress. From, from an earthly perspective, that's pretty impressive. But at that point in his life, um, he would have said that he was relying on Christ for his salvation, but hadn't necessarily submitted his life to Christ as his Lord. And then the Lord really got a hold of his life and made that change, and he submitted his life to Christ and really put more of an emphasis on studying the Bible, learning the Bible, and then teaching the Bible. Um, and he took a position. He still continued to work in the uh, engineering field, but he took a position as the teaching leader uh, for Bible Study Fellowship up in Boulder, and he taught for uh, 21 years before he retired, uh, teaching the Bible to large groups of men in Boulder. And he would often tell his classes when he was teaching them the Bible that he got more fulfillment and more joy and felt more purpose in his life, teaching one lesson from the Bible than he did from all of those years traveling uh, to make presentations to rocket scientists and to Congress. There is something so valuable about being a servant of Christ. So that's what I want us to do. As Paul shows in his humility how he is humble and submits himself to Christ, we need to be humble but another thing I want to put in there just to be clear is I think sometimes in the church there's a temptation for us to almost be too humble, to almost have this false humility where we downplay everything about ourselves and everything about our experiences in life and say, I can do absolutely nothing and uh, apart, apart from God, I'm just, I, can't, I can't do anything. And in some ways, that's good and right and true. Apart from God, we can do no good thing. But I think we also need to be honest with ourselves and see ourselves the way God sees us. Be honest about the way that he created us and the way that he has worked through us in our lives. A number of years ago, I was listening uh, to a sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest preachers of the last uh, 100 years. And he was preaching through this text in Romans. Uh, I think he did something like 200 sermons through the book of Romans. So his first sermon, uh, he stopped at the word Paul and just did a whole sermon on Paul. And in talking about Paul, one of the points that he was really making for people to see is to see how God had worked through Paul and in Paul's life before his conversion. From where he was born, his citizenship in Rome, from where he grew up and had his training in Tarsus, kind of the center of Greek philosophy at the time, to his extensive religious and biblical training in Judaism. All of those things God was using to prepare Paul for his calling. So what Lloyd-Jones says, uh, he says, be impressed by the marvelous way in which God prepared this particular man for his particular task. And that's what I wanted to tell you to pray and ask God to help you look back at your life and be impressed. Be impressed at the marvelous way that God has prepared you 
for the particular tasks that he has called you to. Your, your calling will look different than that of the apostle Paul. Uh, we are not necessarily called to be an apostle. We didn't see the risen Christ and receive direct revelation from him. Uh, none of us are going to write large portions of the New Testament, but we are nonetheless called and prepared by God for our calling. What are, what are we called to be? At a minimum, each of us, if we are in Christ, is called to be a Christian. Like Paul, we are called to be a servant of Christ Jesus. In addition to that, there can be countless things that God calls us to, and often many things at the same time. You may be called to be a gentle and loving husband, a joyful and submissive wife, a wise and patient father, a caring and nurturing mother, a bold and faithful evangelist, a diligent student of God's word. I could go on and on. But what I want us to think about is do we talk like Paul talks about what we're called to do? Or do you just say, I'm a Christian and this is what I do on Sunday mornings. I go to church once a week. Or do we, like Paul, say, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be his servant, called to be a father, called to be a teacher, called to be a friend, called to be a member of the church. Do we talk about our calling? So we need to find this balance of humility on the one side and honesty on the other side, being honest about the way that God has created us in his image and how he has sovereignly prepared us in what he has ordained in our life circumstances. Look back at your life and look at what has happened to you, what God has ordained for you to prepare you for what he has for you to do or what he may have for you to do in the future. So we have to find this balance of humble, but not too humble, and honest with ourselves about what God has prepared, especially in our lives for us. Kind of this balance of honesty and humility, balancing our worth, and on the other hand, our feeling unworthy, uh, especially in our sin, I think is balanced so well uh, in the lyrics to a song by Keith and Kristen Getty called My Worth Is Not In What I Own. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this song here, but I want to read you a few of the lyrics. It goes like this, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. And then this is how it finishes, and this is the line that I just love. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. We must humbly submit to Christ as our Lord, while simultaneously being honest about how God created us and has prepared us for what he has called us to do. Now on to our next point. We need to speak boldly about the gospel of God. Look with me back at Romans chapter 1. Speak boldly about the gospel of God. We're going to pick up at the end of verse 1. I was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Here in Romans, we see Paul's love for the gospel. Is the gospel something that we truly love? Do we treasure the gospel? Paul knows where he's going to go in, in this letter. He knows that what he's going to write about. Probably in all of Scripture, one of the best comprehensive proclamations of the gospel is, is what he's going to get to as he continues on in this letter. But he's barely out of his first breath, and he's getting to the truths of the gospel. He can't wait to talk about the gospel. Is that true of us? I pray that it would be, and I fear that oftentimes for me, I'm either timid or afraid or even ashamed. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. Look at me here just briefly with the rich content and the theology that Paul packs into these few little verses here. It's, it's not for him just kind of a dry regurgitation of gospel facts, but it's living and active and always something new for Paul, something that he's excited to tell people about. I feel like sometimes for me it can all, almost seem like the gospel becomes an obligation, we think to ourselves. And I've, I've been talking to this person for three hours now. I, I should probably say something about God. That's the opposite of the way it was with Paul. He's like, my name is Paul. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And here I'm going to tell you about the gospel. So the first thing there, it says, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's showing that the gospel is part of God's sovereign plan. The gospel is not an accident. It's not something that surprised God that Jesus had to come to save us from our sins. It was promised beforehand. It is part of God's sovereign plan for us. And then also a big thing that he draws out here is just a rich picture of who Christ is. The doctrine of Christology. You see here at the start it says, descended from David according to the flesh. So we see Christ's humanity. He took on flesh. He humiliated himself from the place where he was with God in heaven. He humiliated himself and came down to earth and took on human flesh. So we see the humanity of Christ, his full humanity, but we also see the deity of Christ. He was declared to be the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God. So you see rich Christology in this short statement. You also see a rich statement of the Trinity. You see all parts of the Trinity working in this. So you see it's the gospel of God concerning his Son. So you have the Father and the Son, and then you have the Son of God, so Son and Father. He's declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all packed in to this brief introduction to the gospel. I think it's so easy for us now in the church sometimes to take these doctrines for granted, but never miss the importance of who Christ is. Never miss the importance of the Trinity. Scott and I in school spent a good portion of last year studying historically how the church fathers fought and died to defend these doctrines. So don't ever take them for granted. Let us be as excited about the gospel as Paul was. Let us pray that through the Holy Spirit we might daily grow in our knowledge of the gospel and in our love for sharing the gospel with other people.
Next, we need to speak intentionally about our mission. Look at how Paul describes his mission in verse 5. So he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So we see here Paul's goal is the glory of God. It's, for, it's all for the sake of God's name among the nations. It's not just to bring about obedience. Paul isn't walking around sharing a set of rules with other people to teach them to follow that set of rules. It's not just about obedience. Obedience is part of it. It's also not just about faith. He wants people to believe in God. But it's not just about obedience and just about faith. We see it there. To bring about the obedience of faith, yes, those are things that we strive for. But all of it is for the sake of his name among all the nations. Uh, the, qu the first question in the Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? It's another way to say what is our mission. And the answer to that is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We need to maintain the focus of our mission like Paul did. We can oftentimes get distracted with little pieces of a mission and make, make a piece of the mission that's ultimately supposed to be towards the glory of God. We can make that our whole mission and dive into that. I was thinking a couple months back as we had the Olympics, uh, we were in the process of moving, so I didn't watch as much of it as I normally do, but think about an Olympic swimmer. What is their ultimate goal in the Olympics? To win a gold medal. Maybe for their own glory, maybe for the glory of their country, but that is their goal. There are many parts to that in their training. They work on their breathing. They work on perfecting their swimming stroke, on kicking correctly, on their starts, jumping into the water, on their turns at the wall, all of those things. But they can't get distracted with one of those things. Their goal, their mission is not to be an Olympic breather or to be an Olympic kicker. No, it's to be a swimmer. You have to do all of it and keep your eye on the prize. And that's true with us. We can't get distracted by specific things. We can't seek our own glory. It's not all about us. It's not even about just conversions, getting people to believe. It's not about filling the pews in our churches. It's not about caring for the sick and the poor. It's not about any of those things by themselves. All of those things are part of it. But we have to keep our focus on the main mission for the sake of his name among all the nations. Our main aim, our main mission, and the way we talk about our mission has to be focused on the glory of God. Finally, we come to our last point we need to speak encouragingly to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul has introduced himself, said who he is. He's a servant of Christ. He's talked about the gospel, why he served, what he is proclaiming. He's talked about his mission to point to the glory of God. And now he turns to talking about the people that he is writing the letter to.
Look at that here. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And then in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound like how we talk to each other? Sometimes. I think we, we talk about encouragement a lot in, in the church, as we should. I think encouragement is a very important thing. But I, wanna, I want us to be careful with our language and the way that we can talk about it. Sometimes I think we can almost misuse our terms a little bit and get encouragement mixed up with appreciation. What is real encouragement? So think about this example. Um, if my wife gets up in the morning and she's getting ready for the church and I tell her that she looks really nice and I think she is beautiful. I'm appreciating the way she works, that, uh, the way that she looks. That probably makes her feel good. If she cooks me a delicious meal, I can say, I love this meal. I appreciate it. This meal is fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this for me. And that, that will make her feel good about what she's done. And it's good and right for us to appreciate the people in our wives. And I'm not, I'm not telling you to not appreciate your wife. Don't, don't say that I said that. It's good for us to appreciate one another. But does that really provide encouragement? Let's, let's look at the definitions from, from Webster to be clear about our language. So appreciation is recognition and enjoyment of the good qualities of someone or something. So that's a good thing to do. We want to recognize when the people in our lives do good. Inside the church, we want to recognize when other people are serving and doing things well. We want to recognize that, uh, be grateful for it, thank them for it. Oftentimes the way that Paul does it is he thanks God for what other people are doing. It's not that we don't acknowledge what people are doing. And, and a good way to do that is to say, I thank God for the work that I see in your life. And that's how Paul does it often in his letters. But here the focus of Paul is not on the individuals in the church in Rome. He, he hasn't been there. He doesn't know of the individuals. He may know some things about them by reputation. But his encouragement to them is not based on what they've done or what he's heard about them. It's based in God. So let's look at the definition of encouragement. Encouragement is, according to Webster, the action of giving someone support, confidence, and hope. Giving someone support, confidence, or hope. Kind of the roots of the word are literally to put courage into the heart of someone. To put courage into someone. To encourage so with the example of my wife, if I tell her that she looks beautiful, that makes her feel good. But is that something, her beauty, is that something that she can put her confidence and hope in? Beauty will fade. If I appreciate her for the things that she does, and she does things well, and I acknowledge that and appreciate her for that, are the things that we do something that we can put our hope and confidence in? If we did the right things all the time, it would be great. We could put our hope and confidence in that. 
but we will fail. And if our only encouragement comes from hearing about you're doing so well, you're doing this thing right, our confidence and hope starts to be in our own behavior and our own ability. But that's, that's pretty shaky foundation for our confidence and hope. Let's look at where Paul points these people when he wants to encourage them. He says this, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ and you belong to him, belonging to Christ, is that something that we can have confidence and hope in? Absolutely. Absolutely. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, the fact that you are loved by God, does that give you confidence and hope more than you're looking well today, sir? You look nice. I appreciate that you came to church today. You did such a great job coming here. That doesn't provide the same level of encouragement as to know that you are loved. You are under the steadfast love of an eternal, unchanging God. That gives you encouragement. And that is how we ought to encourage one another. He continues on, and called to be saints. Called to be saints, you have a place of purpose. You have a place of belonging. You're called to be a part of the body. You're not on your own. If you're in Christ, it's not just you and Christ. You're called into his family with your brothers and sisters around you. That is something that can give you encouragement and confidence. You will fail. I will fail every day, multiple times a day. So we can't base our hope in ourselves, but we can put our faith and our hope and our trust in Christ and what he has done for us. I want to be specifically clear on this when it comes to our salvation. If we are putting our hope in anything that we do to save us, we're doomed. We're doomed. Scripture is clear. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot live up to the perfect standard of God's holy law. We fail ourselves every time and continue to, and we cannot get out of that on our own. Our only hope is in Christ. He is our only firm foundation. I love how it's put uh, in, in the old hymn. It goes by several different names. Uh, the Solid Rock, or My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. It's a hymn written by an English pastor named Edward Mote. I want to share some of the words of that hymn with you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. 
If we're putting our hope in ourselves, our souls will give way. But if we put our hope on the firm foundation of Christ, He will be our hope and He will be our confidence. So that is how we need to speak to ourselves and how we need to speak to each other when we want to encourage each other. We need to point ourselves, point our wives, point our children, point our friends, point each other to our hope in Christ. The original title for that hymn that I've never seen in a hymnal. I think somebody thought they knew better, but uh, I like the title that Edward Moak gave it when he wrote it. He calls it this, The Immutable Basis for a Sinner's Hope. The Immutable Basis for a Sinner's Hope. The solid rock is catchy, but I like to look at the immutable, the unchangeable basis of my hope as a sinner. So in conclusion, remember that we need to speak honestly and humbly about ourselves. Our identity, the most important thing about us is that we are servants of Christ. If you are in Christ, that's the most important thing about you. I don't know all of you here today, but the fact that you're here and if you are in Christ I know the most important thing about you. I don't know your history. I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know about your family or your spouse or your kids. But if you are in Christ, I know what's most important about you, that you're a servant of Christ and you're my brother and sister in Christ. We need to speak boldly and clearly about the gospel of God. We need to be eager to preach the gospel. Paul continues just a little bit farther on in this chapter. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Who's he writing to in Rome? He's writing to the church. He's eager to preach the gospel to Christians. We need to be eager to preach the gospel to each other and to all those outside in this city, in La Junta, in Colorado, in the United States, and to all the nations. Not for the sake of conversions, but for the sake of the glory of God. We need to be intentional about our mission. Strive to fulfill the calling on your life through the obedience of faith. Obedience and faith are important, but they are not our ultimate aim. Our ultimate aim is the glory of our great God and the spread of His name throughout all the nations. And we need to speak encouragement to our brothers and sisters. Base our confidence and our hope only on the work of Christ alone. If we base our hope on what we have, we have no hope. I don't know all of you, um, but if you're trying to make yourself right with God based on what you are doing in your own works, it's not ever going to work. You can't attain the level of perfection that's required to live up to God's standards. Our only hope in salvation is the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on our human flesh, lived the perfect life that we could never live, died the terrible death that each of us deserved to die. That is where our worth is found. That is where our hope is found, is in the cross of Christ. If you don't know Christ, if you're relying on your own works, I urge you today to come to Christ by faith. 
Believe in Him. Believe that He is the Son of God. Recognize that you are a sinner. That you cannot save yourself on your own. That you need to turn to Him as your only sure and steady hope in this world. If you have not yet found your true source of encouragement and hope in Christ, come to Christ today. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Scott would love to talk to you about the service. But let's all remember that the ultimate thing in our lives is the glory of our great God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word that you have given to us to reveal to us the truths about yourself, the truth about your son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he did on our behalf. We are challenged today by these words of Paul. We see that the way that we speak to ourselves, the way that we speak to each other, doesn't live up to what we see in this example that you have given to us through your servant, Paul. We ask that you would strengthen us through your spirit to love you more and more, to grow in our love for the gospel, that we might treasure it more every day and not treasure it in a way that we hoard it to ourselves, but treasure it in a way that we want to give it to everyone that we meet. Pray that you would give us an unflinching focus on the mission that you have called us to, to spreading the glory of your name, the riches of the truth of the gospel to everyone that we encounter. First within the church and with each other and then into the streets and around the world that your great name may be glorified. We praise you for the work that you have done on the cross on our behalf. We praise you for Christ dying in our stead so that his righteousness might become ours if we are found in Christ. Pray that we would all live our lives as we go out from here today in light of that truth, that we are not our own, but have been bought with a price and for a reason to serve you for the sake of your name and your glory. It's in the glorious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.